2: everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno, the Senior Editor at Real Vision, sending to you live from Copenhagen, Denmark, the 7th of uh, July. It's been another action-packed day with Boris Johnson resigning as the Prime Minister in the UK from the early morning while uh, equity markets have rallied again, begging the question where the markets have already bottomed. Um, I'm super pleased to be joined by one of the best people I know in finance, Jeff Snyder, also known as Mr. Eurodollar. Jeff is the chief strategist for Atlas Financial. Jeff, uh, a warm welcome to the show. Hi, Andres. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Likewise, Jeff. Um, I know you follow markets and the economy uh, closely, Jeff. Um, We had jobless claims um, coming in high again this week, pointing to a weakening labor market. We had uh, recent trade balance data suggesting that imports and uh, hence demand has waned in the US. Give us your top down view of uh, where the economy is heading over the next couple of quarters here.
1: Well, Andreas, I think you're right. That's the place to start. Is what is the labor market going to look look like? Because that's not only what the Federal Reserve is looking at in terms of judging its rate hikes. Uh obviously the unemployment rate, Phillips curve, all that stuff. But really, where is the uh, actual underlying economy going? Um jobless claims have bottomed had bottomed out a couple months ago. They're rising. They're not they're not surging by any means. And they're at an incredibly low level, uh, weekly level, seasonally adjusted. But still, it's that direction and the persistence of that direction that gets our attention, that maybe we've reached an economic turn. And it's not just jobless claims either. There's other labor market data. We'll see tomorrow with the major payroll reports whether it follows through. But the ISM numbers both manufacturing and non-manufacturing, their employment components are below 50. Uh, The non-manufacturing in particular was 47.4, so quite a bit below 50. Both of them, the lowest they've been since 2020. So there's some forward-looking indications that maybe there's some definite softening going on in the labor market. Also, you got to think about the household survey, the other unappreciated twin to the establishment survey. That one dropped precipitously, in the month of, for the month of April and then only partially rebounded in February, even though the household survey tends to be very noisy month to month, what you end up with is a two month drop in the household survey, which is sort of indicative of the possibility that, hey, maybe something has changed in the labor market. Uh, we also saw a softening in the ADP numbers, which they're not going to produce for June and I think July, they're not gonna come back until August as they redo their methodology. But there's any number of indications that at least suggest weakening in the labor market. Uh, again, we'll see tomorrow whether or not that's get, it's gotten worse or whether it's, it's continuing to follow through, but that's a good place to start. And at least in terms of the US part of the global economy, are we seeing the economy start to shift?
2: The debate on whether the Federal Reserve will pause a pivot uh, towards the end of the year has been sort of a hot potato in recent weeks in in markets. If we assume that they will actually pause a pivot, what would be the trigger, the labor market or inflation?
1: Both, I think. I think when you, yeah. uh, I mean, let's be honest, the, the curves have been pretty much um, increasingly confident that this is going to happen. And the reason that the curves are saying this is because On the one hand, you have economic weakness. On the other, you have uh, a bunch of warning signs that consumer prices, maybe outside of energy and gasoline, are really starting to soften or are ready to soften. Uh, You have retailers talking, signaling they're going to do liquidations and discounting in some of their goods because inventories are way too high especially given uh, some trends in consumer spending and consumer demand, which aren't very favorable. So it could be a combination of rising unemployment at the same time as uh, decelerating consumer prices, which again, the Fed has said, we're gonna focus exclusively on CPIs. I think they wanna send that message to the public but I think the markets are right that eventually, even as, especially if CPI start to come down, they're going to go right back to focusing on the unemployment rate, especially if the unemployment rate starts to go up any uh, any material fashion, as well as any sustained uh, move in the unemployment rate, they're going to pause and pivot. And I think the market is increasingly confident. If not, you know, nothing's ever certain. There is no 100% in finance or looking forward. But it's, it's increasingly very confident, the markets are increasingly very confident that this is going to happen and probably sooner rather than later.
2: You've brought a a bunch of great charts with you uh, today, Jeff, for the show, and um, the first chart refers to the exact euro dollar future that you indirectly referred to. Um, The inversion of the euro dollar curve has worsened a bit over the past month or so, uh, meaning that dollar LIBOR rates in, for example, 2024 are priced at lower levels than um, the dollar LIBOR rates towards um, the beginning of 2023. Why is that happening and why is it important in your view?
1: Well, why is it important is because the euro dollar futures market, as you just stated, Andreas, is, you know, it's one of the most fundamental marketplaces, one of the most misunderstood as well as uh, ignored or dismissed or, you know, people don't even know it exists. Yet it has historically been validated time and time again. We saw, for example, Euro dollar futures inversion in June of 2018 at a time when nobody was thinking the Fed was going to stop back then, yet the market was increasingly hedging against this very scenario where the economy would turn in the wrong direction, inflation would never materialize back at that time, and that the Fed was going to have to pause its rate hikes and then eventually cut them, as it actually did. And again, the, the inversion took place at a time when nobody was talking about that. Similarly, you go all the way back to 2006. Eurodollar futures curve inverted which was a warning sign that something was going wrong in the monetary financial system in such broad fashion that even though the Fed said we're not going to stop hiking rates we're not going to we're not going to lower them the, the eurodollar futures market sort of got the head of what became the global financial crisis and the Great Recession, and the same thing had happened in two in 1999 and 2000. Eurodollar futures inversion predated what became the dot com recession, so it's a historically validated signal. And what in, you know, and in, in addition to that. What euro dollar futures actually refer to, as you said, three-month LIBOR, which is supposed to be set by the Federal Reserve, but what the market does is looks out in the future and says, okay, the Fed is going to do one thing, or the Fed wants to do one thing, which today accounts for the steepness in the front of the curve because the Fed says it's going to raise rates. And then beyond that, the curve is assessing what the Fed will be able to do, regardless of whether it wants to do it or not. And so the market is pricing. And this is not just some small, tiny, little niche market. This is one of the biggest, deepest, most sophisticated markets where you know trillions upon trillions of fixed income positions around the world are being hedged via this vehicle. So it's something you really need to pay attention to. And when the market begins to hedge for the potential, in really serious potential, given the shape of the curve, for lower interest rates in the future than they are today or will be in the near-term future, That's something you really need to stand up and look at because, again, these trillions upon trillions at risk being hedged in this manner tells you that something is bothering the global monetary and uh, financial system to such an extent that it has distorted the curve. As you you said, Andreas, these curves are just ridiculously inverted at this point, Mm. and they've they've really changed a lot over the last couple of weeks.
2: Yeah if we look at the euro dollar futures curve um it obviously at least partly reflects the future pricing of the fed funds rate but there is also sort of a layer of uh, liquidity considerations beneath the surface of the euro dollar futures curve can you please unpack these liquidity considerations for the audience jeff
1: Well a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know what does the liquidity system look like today and then piling on what it looks like down the road because in one sense what governs interest rates, uh, monetary rates, whether or not it's the Fed or just market rates, is liquidity. Because if, there is, if there's a liquidity problem, then by, uh, we're going to know at some point uh, that interest rates are likely to go lower through time. And one of the ways that happens is if you have a liquidity crisis or a liquidity impediment or some kind of structural problem where the system does not uh, function or will not be able to function in the way it has before. In some ways, the longer end of the euro dollar futures curve is like the long end of the yield curve and that it factors in liquidity characteristics, you know, inflation versus deflationary potential. And when you see the euro dollar futures curve in particular upside down and inverted in the way that it is currently. That's a sign that the market is again it's hedging against something and as you said Andreas it's that something likely contains a liquidity component to it. So the market is getting ready for something to change the Fed's position likely this year. It's you know these are all about probability distributions. You don't take the curve or the prices or the contracts literally, but the the way the curve is shaped currently The market is expecting the Fed to do a couple more rate hikes, likely a couple more rate hikes, and then something will happen, probably has to do with liquidity, which will change the Fed's mind and get interest rates moving on a downward track over time. That's really what the curve has been saying ever since December of last year. This is not something that just showed up. The inversion started December of last year, and the curve has only become more and more inverted, and more importantly, where that inversion begins which has signaled the market more and more concerned about the immediacy as well as the uh, particular depth and scope of the dangers involved.
3: We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads.
2: If we look at the uh, actual numbers priced into the euro dollar futures curve right now, we have March 23 trading around three and a half percent. And then we have March 24 trading substantially below three percent already signaling a, a quite substantial uh, rate cutting cycle uh, commencing from the Federal Reserve sometime through to, uh, 2023. Is this one of the firmer signals that you've seen from the euro dollar curve historically?
1: yeah and that's that's what really is concerning is that uh, we don't usually see the euro even when it is inverted you don't usually see it this inverted and then the shape it's taking, where it's it's almost like you know it's almost like there's a, there's a there's a something weighing on the middle of the curve particularly in that part and what's really uh, i think most concerning is how the other side of the inversion the longer side of the version has moved up too, which is sort of a recession signal but if you put it in the historical context of say 2018-2019 This is far and away above that. And it's starting to look more like, and I hate to use the comparison, but it's starting to look more like 2006, early 2007. I'm not saying we're repeating 2008, but I think the market is hedging against the possibility that severe uh, liquidity problems, which, I mean, (laughs) let's face it, we we may already be seeing some of those already. And so it's not just hedging against future risk. It's hedging against maybe current reality, too, which may account for one reason why the curve is so ugly and distorted right now.
2: I guess the two of us, Jeff, can easily agree that the Eurodollar futures curve is interesting. But why should the average Joe care about the Eurodollar futures curve? <laughs>
1: Because of what it signals, it's not you know it's not about uh, you know its correlation with other market cl- classes or assets or anything like that. It's what it tells us about first of all the monetary system, as well as the uh, potential risks to the global economy. And as we know, in things like assets classes like stocks and others, there is a close correlation between macroeconomic conditions and how stocks fare. So if you were sitting there in December of 20, uh, 2021 last year, and the euro dollar futures curve began its inversion. He thought, well, maybe now's the time to start lightening up on risk positions because the market is starting to get, get is starting to look at uh, the potentially serious downside case such that it is distorting the euro dollar futures curve. And then over time, over the last, you know, what is it now, seven months, uh, uh, the curve inversion has only grown worse, which you can relate uh, to any sort of forecast or, or, or any sort of uh, analysis about what the real economy must be doing at that time, and then for what the risks are to a much broader range of asset classes. So it's a a way to uh, basically calibrate how we view the economy and the markets, especially through the lens of liquidity and money.
2: I wanted to play a soundbite for you uh, as well, Jeff, uh, r- relating to the discussion on whether uh, a recession is upcoming or not. It's uh, from a discussion between Gordon Johnson and um, Michael Green, uh, airing on on Real Vision these days. Um, and the discussion centers around whether a recession is a good thing or not, given the current inflationary environment. So let's let's, let's listen to the soundbite and get back to that discussion.
3: The lesson I learned is when the, Feds, when the Fed reverses course and says QE infinity back on, we're up. I shouldn't say we're. We're going to be much more bullish than we were prior because it, nothing matters when they do that. And you know the regulators have said you know if a stock gets too big, we're not going to regulate. But look again, I think inflation is a big problem, and I think you know all these all these economists saying you know the Fed can't afford to raise rates. I mean, that's ridiculous. If you look at interest payments divided by GDP right now, if you look at interest payments of the U.S. government divided by GDP, it's at like the lowest level it's been since 1957. So they can absolutely raise rates and the U.S. will be just fine. Um And and the problem is, again, if they don't get this fl- inflation under control, I, it won't it matter when they start to print again. People just won't be able to afford stuff. And you'll have a revolution and, I, you know – it'll be just, I mean, you'll have riots in the streets. I mean, people, you know, if milk goes to $20 a a bottle and and, and companies now start to fire people, you're going to see that. We think you're going to start to see a firing cycle as people try to pad earnings. We think you're already seeing that. Uh, It's going to be a disaster. So I think the Fed is serious. I think they're serious. We speak to people who have previously worked at at the Fed. Um, They're telling us they're serious. So I think we're going to go through a period of, you know, fundamentals are going to matter again. And if that, and, and in that environment, I think the things that you and I believe, just, you know, things that we agree on, I think are going to become much more important. Stock picking is going to become much more important. You know, companies who generate money is going to become much more important. And I think in that environment, um, you know, some of this stuff is going to level out. Some of these companies that shouldn't be operational will go out of business. And that's a natural, healthy thing. Recessions, cycles are natural. You You know, circumventing cycles via money printing is not natural. So I think this is a good thing.
2: The entire interview is available for subscribers of uh, the Real Vision platform. Back to the uh, discussion with uh, with you, Jeff. Uh, Gordon refers to a very firm Federal Reserve, uh, and almost hints that it could be a good idea to get sort of a washout in the economy to ensure that inflation gets back down. What do you make of that discussion?
1: Well, I think the first part I, I would definitely agree with, and the the fact that the Federal Reserve has made it absolutely clear that they've abandoned their dual mandate and that they're going to focus with singular passion upon consumer prices. And so that I don't think anybody disagrees with. In fact, the markets agree with it, which is, again, why you see the curves so steep up front, because the market is pricing in this so-called Fed reaction function, which they've made very clear is all about CPIs. It's the other part of the curves and the other part of the discussion where I think you have to really focus. Which is the the markets are saying yes. The Fed wants to raise rates aggressively, but it won't be able to. It's the what's not holding the Fed back, or what's what's not holding interest rates back. It's not the Fed's willingness that's going to hold the interest rates back. It's the ability to continue raising rates because. Prospects for recession aren't just about washing out any consumer price of any leftover consumer price imbalances in the economy. The recession is itself a deflationary function of the, uh, the supply shock and maybe the inevitable, uh, the inevitable, I hate to use the word transitory, but the inevitable end of transitory factors. And that's why the curves are the way they are, because what they're saying is that the Fed is looking at one thing. It changed its mind about transitory, famously last fall. And it would have been correct to not change its mind to look at the economy in a very different way and that consumer prices are On their way to being dealt with, not by rate hikes, not by the Fed, but by the very own imbalances of of what's going on with the supply shock. And as well as some very real coincident deflationary dangers in the monetary system itself, things like collateral shortages and other things, which pile up together to give us these distorted curves and the view of these curves, which is that the Fed wants to raise rates because of its reaction function, but that it's not going to be able to. And it's not going to be able to because of the environment that we all are going to find ourselves in or are likely to find ourselves in
2: in the near term future. I, I perfectly agree that the top priority for the Federal Reserve is now to uh, combat inflation. But talking about inflation, if we look at market pricing over the past, say, three, four weeks, uh, I would argue we've seen some signals in, um, in usual inflation hedges, such as industrial metals, uh, commodities broadly. Um, in the wrong direction, uh, if you're betting on higher inflation, what do you make of the recent market action in commodity space?
1: I think co it, it coincides and corroborates exactly the, the, the problem that we're facing, which is the recession is not a good thing in that end inflation. It's the recession is the inevitable result of the end of the supply shock, which, again, copper or even oil prices this week that tanks uh, that fell so hard. and. Um, Industrial metals as a class are telling us, I think, something very important about the state of global, global demand. Because remember, this is not just about the U.S. economy. There is recessionary forces and recessionary indications spreading throughout the entire global economy from Europe to Japan, even into China. And I think these industrial metals are telling us something about demand in particular, given the fact that up until now, They are even including now that they, that these metals have had a very favorable supply side fundamental picture because of bottlenecks, because of shortages, because of low inventories. And yet their prices have fallen recently, fallen very much, uh, very hard recently, not just copper, but you have aluminum, you have iron ore, and even steel prices in China, which I think tells us something very specific about what the market is thinking just about global demand in the near-term picture. So again, the idea that inflation is some kind of separate function outside of the the real economy, it's not being priced that way into these markets.
3: We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads.
2: No, I would agree, Jeff. Um, If we look at the price action in the US dollar, uh, we usually see this strong inverse correlation between commodities and uh, the US dollar. And we've actually seen that correlation picking up again recently with a very strong dollar against both the euro, but also other currencies alongside this landslide in commodities. Uh, What is your main explanation for the strong dollar?
1: well the strong dollar i mean the dollar is a global bellwether of financial conditions i think it's very much misunderstood in the mainstream people don't really know why the dollar moves where it does they don't even know how to interpret most times remember you know not that long ago people would see the rising dollar and think it's king dollar the us is the cleanest dirty shirt whatever the euphemism you wanted to use But that's not really what moves the dollar the dollar is a global bellwether of financial conditions and when it goes up as it did in the 2008 crisis as it did in march of 2020 that doesn't mean anything good as far as money and economy and when it has gone up as much as it has there it's not directly proportional but the farther the dollar goes up the faster it goes up the more we know the more we can reasonably suspect that the monetary system is rapidly tightening. It has nothing to do with the Fed, has nothing to do with quantitative tightening, because the dollar has been going up over the last year and a half. It started in January of 2021 and really picked up in the middle of last year, even as the Fed was full tilt QE, taper not even a glint in Jay Powell's eye. So the monetary system has been tightening all along. And the reason there wasn't that tight correlation between monetary tightening and falling commodities was the favorable supply shock picture that that supported commodity prices up until recently. So now as we have demand questions as well as supply questions... In some of those commodities, at the same time, you see uh, bad liquidity indications, not just in the rising dollar, but also any number of other things. Again, I go back to collateral repo derivatives and things like that. It makes sense that that correlation wouldn't be able to survive apart forever or that correlation would eventually converge in the same thing. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing now. At least that's what the markets are saying, that the rising dollar and what that actually means in terms of tightening money, deflationary consequences down the road
2: they are being priced into the commodity markets as well. I, I want to pick your brain a little bit on uh, the liquidity equation and uh, the associated risks in the repo space, because uh, you've sent over a couple of important charts from the primary dealer statistics on the amount of fails to deliver within the repo, repo space. Uh, can you please unpack what that means uh, and why it's important? Well,
1: collateral is the lifeblood of the monetary system. We all think it's the Fed and bank reserves, but those actually don't really matter at all that much to begin with. It really is collateral. I mean, you go back to 2007, 2008, it wasn't really about subprime mortgages. It was a collateral shortage, partially related to subprime mortgages and what had happened to the revaluation of all those assets. But in very, very brief terms... The collateral space isn't what it sounds like it should be, which is in a repo transaction, you post some collateral, and somebody lets you borrow funds. And a lot of times the collateral that's being posted isn't yours. You've borrowed it from somebody else. And so you have this rehypothecation, reuse, repledging stew or you know, this, this, this amorphous blob of collateral streams all over the place where it's not so simple as a one-to-one transaction. And so there, there, there comes times. Uh, like recently, going back to 2018, for example, 2018, 2019, again, 2007, 2008, where collateral becomes scarce. It becomes hard to source. It becomes hard to borrow and reuse. And we see that in any number of ways, including Treasury bill prices, for example, because they're the best of the best quality collateral. Uh, So if you see that the four-week T-bill, for example, as it is today, which is about 30-some basis points below RRP, that is telling you the market, the money market, the deep monetary fundamentals are paying an extraordinary premium to secure the best quality collateral. From that, we can infer there must be an extreme collateral shortage for there to be such a liquidity premium on it. And then we can corroborate that view any number of ways, including repo fails, which is when uh, you see repo fails rise when repo counterparties value the collateral more than they do the cash. They say, hey, you keep the cash. I want Mm. the treasury. And so and in a lot of cases, it's not even cash for collateral. It's collateral for collateral. So they're saying, I'm going to keep the treasury. You keep the junk bond that I, that I posted yesterday. And so we see repo fails, rise. You see treasury bill prices go up. These are indications of a shortfall in collateral. And collateral, again, is the lifeblood currency of the system. And I think this is the biggest deflationary risk, the biggest unappreciated deflationary risk of the global economy, the global marketplace currently and it's already at pretty sizable proportions you th- you look at some of the repo fails um we don't have the repo fails for last week just yet i think that's coming out in a couple minutes but the week the latest data we have for the week of june 2020 or june 22nd of this year repo fails were almost as high or, or as high as they had been during the march 2020 event and i think that's an unappreciated uh, real shortfall deficit factor negative pressure That kind of starts to explain what we're already seeing. Why is the dollar going up so far and so fast as it is? Why are commodities crashing? Why are these curves so ugly and inverted? Because as I said before, it's not just about future liquidity risk. There's some future deflationary monetary reality that is actually uh, striking the marketplace. And from that, the consequences over the last half of the year. When you have deflationary money in any time period, especially as severe as it might be, it's not going to do very well in the real economy, which kind of explains the picture of Euro dollar futures, which says, what is it that's going to turn the Fed around? Get it out of its single-minded reaction function and get it thinking about pausing and then pivoting later in the year. Well, the deflationary consequences of what we see in the collateral system would be
2: one way for that to happen. It's an extremely interesting uh, observation, Jeff, Uh, and one question uh, from my side in in that regards. If we assume that this turns into a hot topic within the Federal Reserve, this collateral, collateral scarcity, what would they do about it in case? That's
1: a huge assumption (laughs) because it's it's a topic that I think they studiously avoid Mm. because as a as the Federal Reserve isn't really a central bank, they certainly don't have much capacity to do something about uh, do something about the collateral problem, even though they continue to say, hey, we've got it covered. We've got the primary dealer credit facility. We've got FIMA for foreigners who want to who aren't able to repo treasuries. And what we've seen time and again is that these things don't really work because it, they, the Federal Reserve does not provide a perfect alternate or a perf- perfect substitute to a well-functioning repo market and re- well-functioning collateral system. The Fed is sort of just kind of hoping people believe that these things will be effective and therefore that, well, that sentimental effect will have an impact. But in any, ter- any, any technical terms, any plumbing terms, we're kind of everybody knows you're on your own. Even though the Fed has, for example, a securities lending program, and the securities lending program as of the last couple of weeks is at uh, near highs, near all-term highs, which, again, another collateral shortage indication, it's still a drop in the bucket compared to the potential negative deflationary impacts of a true collateral shortfall. Uh, To put it succinctly, the Fed is just not part of that
2: game yeah uh, we have time for a couple of questions from the audience um, first one from uh, from michael um, referring to the uh, increasing volatility in the move index referring to bond volatility um, He is curious why the move index continues to rise when we've actually seen a retracement lower in long bond yields what do you make of that
1: I think it goes back to and it speaks to the tug of war between the short end and the in the long end. That has not been decided yet. Again, the long end is pretty sure, pretty confident those are buying treasuries at the long end, pretty confident that the Fed is going to end up turning around that deflationary and lack of growth potential is what uh, what, what our our future is going to look like. But still, the short end is saying we're going to you know the Fed's going to be able to push rates up for the next little while. And so that that kind of tug of war goes back and forth and it's produced a lot of volatility in the treasury space. And you know, for the last couple of weeks, it's been the long end that's on the winning end of that, that balance. And then the last couple of days, it's been the opposite. And it it's sort of just wild swings in the treasury market because you have these two titanic competing narratives, competing forces that are that are trying to settle one from the other. And we aren't quite there yet. I mean, both sides are kind of entrenched in their positions and it's they're each taking turns sort of slugging each other with wild uh, haymakers
2: uh, I've made it my trademark as a host of the Real Vision Daily Briefing uh, to always conclude the Daily Briefing with a meme. Uh, and I would like to bring uh, a meme uh, referring to the potential upcoming recession uh, up on the screens. Um, and we have one final question that uh, truly relates to, um, to this meme from Joe. Um, he's asking for your best guess for when the market recovery will begin since the stock market always precedes the economic cycle.
1: Yeah, I'm not. You know, the stock market is a forward discounting mechanism. That's arguable to uh, at any time. But you know, the question about when will risk assets in general start to recover depends upon what kind of recession we're looking at. If it's a sort of 1980 style recession where it was it was pretty severe and pretty sharp and and uh, uh, reached a, a pretty serious depth. It was it was a nasty contraction, but it only lasted about six months. If that's the case, if that's kind of what we're looking at, and we'll look to the to the various curves to give us clues about that, then it could be that risk assets recover relatively quickly because you could have a very sharp but very short recession. I worry that given some of the curve shapes, especially the Treasury curve, that maybe the market's looking at something different, uh, something more along the lines, as we've seen since 2008, these repeated downward ratchets in the economy where we don't get a sharp but short recession, then a quick recovery, we might get a a pretty severe downturn and then no recovery, sort of the dreaded L-shaped thing. So it really depends upon what kind of contraction we have facing us. And we'll have to look at some of these curves to to tell us what the market is hedging for as far as how deep they'll go, how long they'll go, how quickly, or if able to recover from it.
2: I think it's safe to say that if you have some cash ready to deploy during a recession you can make some superb deals the question is just the timing right and i personally think it's a tad too early i don't know whether you concur with that view yeah i think so too
1: because i don't think we've seen the full aspects of the downside here especially given the gross imbalances i still go back to the 2020 recession and the fact that i think people have confused and conflated cpis for actual economic recovery as you said before you know we're talking about goods versus service and things like that um, you know, I don't think the uh, consumer prices and supply shock, I don't think the economy ever truly recovered. In fact, I know it didn't. Uh, the data and s- statistics all bear that out. We'd, we've never recovered from 2020. We've just been fooled into thinking that way because of consumer prices. And if you start to think about a prospect for recession on top of an economy that never recovered, It's when you really start to worry that uh, it becomes more than just your garden variety sort of 2001 dot com recession. It could be something more serious
2: and severe, and therefore maybe prolonged. Jeff Snyder, the uh, chief strategist for Atlas Financial. It's been an absolute pleasure to host you uh, during the show. Thanks for joining.
1: Thanks for having me, Andres. It was my pleasure.
2: Um, thank you so much for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Mackie Lake, my colleague, will be back tomorrow with Raul Pell guesting the show. See you there. What's up, Revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to Realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance